Last week, we finished with, and I know there's a couple of people faces who are new this week, so um, but in the first slide we'll just give you a very, very brief overview. Last week we finished with Abraham, or Abram. We looked a bit about the creation and the fall. We looked at the Tower of Babel as an example of man trying to raise himself up to the same level as God. And then we looked at the pledge. The pledge, as we called it, was when God promised to Abraham a people and a land and to be a blessing to all nations. And as we look at the events of the Old Testament tonight, we will start to see this pledge start to be worked out. But first, let's start with the change of name that Abraham went through, as we will start to refer to him as Abraham. And in Genesis 17, a couple of chapters after the original pledge, God reconfirms his pledge to Abraham. And Anne, I think, is going to read this reading to us. Genesis 17. Sorry, I'm not used to these things. Thank you. Is that right? Yeah. Genesis 17, 1 to 8. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell down, face down. And God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Thank you very much. We're going to have the second reading in just a moment. But... Uh, oh. First of all, let's note the change in name. Abram means exalted father, but Abram was now to be known as Abraham, which means father of many, which expresses his role in God's plan. And in this section, we will be picking up a couple of the promises made to Abraham, in particular those of a people and those of a land, Canaan. And in this section, we'll be looking basically at the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. We won't be going into massive depth in each of the verses, but that's the section we're looking at if you want to refer back to it later. So a quick look at Abraham's family tree. And we're going to whiz through these quite quickly, but it's just to give you a broad sweep of how it connects up right from the beginning through to the land of Canaan. And maybe you'll see the names from various stories you already know about as we go along. So Abraham, 
um, was the father to many sons, but the two key sons were Ishmael and Isaac. Now, Isaac was Abraham's son by Sarah's wife. Now, to, to Isaac, Abraham left everything he had upon his death. And then in turn, Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. God gives Jacob an alternative name, Israel, meaning he struggles with God. And in Genesis 35, he reconfirms the blessing originally given to Abraham to Jacob. Anne, would you like to read the second of the two readings? This is now Genesis 35, 9 till 12. After Jacob returned from Padam Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you, and I will give this this land to your descendants after you. Thank you very much. So, Jacob is now Israel a name you may be familiar with. And so, Jacob has 12 sons. And this is where we get the 12 tribes of Israel. And the 12 sons... Now, of the... Sorry, excuse me. Of the 12 sons, one of the names is much more key and much more known to you probably than all the others. Joseph. Now, Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. However, through God's blessing, Joseph came into a position of power under Pharaoh, running the whole land, second only to Pharaoh. And then a drought came, and Jacob, along with Joseph's brothers, were forced to come to Egypt to obtain food. There they were reunited with their brother, and the Israelites settled in Egypt. So they were in Canaan when the promise was made, And now, through this twist of fate, they've ended up in Egypt. First Joseph, then the rest of of his brothers, and therefore the start of the tribes of of Israel. The twelve tribes of Israel are all in Egypt. And over the next 400 years, the people of Israel grew massively, generation upon generation. Unfortunately, this made the new king of Egypt feel threatened, And so he enslaved the people of Israel. And as an oppressed people, the Israelites were forced to build the mighty cities of the Egyptians. So in our path from Abraham through the sons, a great people has now been created. But they're not in the promised land. They are ruthlessly oppressed in slavery to the Egyptians. Now God had a plan to deliver his people, Israel, from Egypt, and to take them across the desert and into the land of Canaan. And the person he used to do this was Moses. 
So this was 400 years later. The generations had gone on and on. And so we come to Moses, a direct descendant. He was of the tribe of Levi. Levi being one of the sons of Jacob. And through a godly twist of fate, and I'm sure you know this story, um, he, he became to become a, um, a prince in the Egyptian court, but then he had to flee after he killed an Egyptian who was beating an Israelite. But Moses was told by God to return to Egypt and demand Pharaoh let, people's, let God's people go. I'm sure you know Pharaoh wasn't eager to lose his slaves and so was resistant to Moses' call. It took miraculous signs, plagues and finally the death of the firstborn of Egypt in a time we now call the Passover before Pharaoh allowed the Israelites to leave. And even once they had left, Pharaoh changed his mind and pursues Moses and the people. And it is what is probably one of the best known stories in the Bible God parted the Red Sea to allow his people to cross and then brought the waters crashing down the pursuing chariots. Moses takes the people of Israel into the desert and towards Canaan by a circular route, avoiding the main trade routes. And this is the journey they took. I mean, it's no wonder that films have been made of this story. It is quite epic in its proportions. God's people, enslaved by the Egyptians, rescued by God through Moses. Think what it must have been like if you were one of the Israelites. You wouldn't think that you would ever forget what had happened to you as a people, the journey that you'd come on. You'd think, possibly, that you would be eternally grateful to God and never doubt him again. Well, if you thought that, you'd be wrong. Now, we're going to have a sketch with some wonderful actors. Well, and pads, yes, yes. Nearly there yet. Nearly. 
Mom, I'm thirsty again. Pads, you are not having two drinks on a long car journey. I'm not having oh. an accident like yeah, you. Went yourself. <laughs> <laughs> are we there yet, Mum? Yes, we're here. Hey. Right, come on. You go and look at the rides, and I'll pay the man for our tickets. <laughs> We're not going in there. Oh, I'm not going on that. They look scary. Are oh, you joking? Look, they're so scary. You complained when you were at home and you had nothing to do. Can I've we... driven all the way out here and now you don't want to go on the right. Well, it's this for? I want to go home. I want to go home. We're going to Grandma's. We're going to Grandma's. Oh, no, no not Grandma's. Very good. In the sketch, we saw the children rescued from their drudgery and on, to, on the way to their promised land, the theme park. And you would have thought they would have been grateful and behaved themselves in the way. But rather, they complained and they grumbled. And in the same way, the people of Israel grumbled too. Some of the same kind of lines you'd expect from children. So the people, people grumbled against Moses saying, What are we going to drink? Another one in Exodus. In the desert the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, Oh, if only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Another Exodus. But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? And then finally, when they reached Canaan, they even reached the promised land. Moses sent out spies. But the spies reported back that the people of Canaan were too many and too large to be conquered. And so again the Israelites grumbled. If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose, choose a leader and go back to Egypt. The people pushed God too far. They had refused to trust him, even though he was the same God who had rescued them from, my, from the mighty Egypt. So God made a judgment that the people of Israel would not enter the promised land until all the men of that generation that had refused to enter Canaan had died, including Moses. The only exceptions were Joshua and Caleb who were two of the spies who had trusted God. And after 40 years of wandering in the desert, Joshua was finally able to lead the people of Israel into the land promised to them. Now I think one of the reasons the sketch seems to fit so well with the story is that the story of the Israelites is one I think we can identify with. If we think about the life of God's people in the Old Testament and the lives of God's people today, 
Christians, some comparisons can be made. Like the Israelites, we have been delivered by God from slavery. In their case, it was slavery in Egypt. In our case, slavery from sin. Secondly, like the Israelites, we are a people who are on a journey. We're in an in-between time. In their case, the promised land was Canaan. And in our case, we long for the day, or are waiting for the day, when the return of Christ and the establishment of the everlasting kingdom. Then, just like the Israelites, we are called to be in obedience to God. But that leads us to perhaps the most confronting comparison we could make. I think we, like the Israelites, sometimes fail to trust God when times are difficult or even just unknown. How often do we doubt God? Do we sometimes grumble against him? Sometimes this isn't always with our words. Often we simply choose to stop following God's way and instead follow our own way. We want to find our new leader. Rebellion can be defined as the refusal to accept some authority. When we fail to trust God completely and his authority as king, we put ourselves in a position of rebellion. So, in our story tonight, the people of Israel have reached Canaan. At the end of 40 years of wandering in the desert, with Joshua ready to take the people of Israel into the promised land. But actually we're going to go back a step. Because some of you may have noticed we skipped over a rather crucial part of the Bible story. That is the giving of the law and in particular the Ten Commandments. Three months after Moses had led the people out of Egypt, they came to the mountain of Sinai which is unsurprisingly in the desert of Sinai. It's right down in the bottom tip there. Here Moses went up to the mountain and God spoke to him. Andrea, would you be able to read the first of our two readings? This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's Exodus 19 verses 3 to 6. Thank you. Despite their position when they're in, 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 the, um, in the desert lands, God reconfirms to them yet again that they are to be his people. God reminds the people of their deliverance and explains how they will remain his holy nation if they remain obedient to him. And then God gives Moses the Ten Commandments to give to the people. Here they are. And as we look at these laws, it's probably good to think back to last week. Last week we talked about our attitudes to rulers and authorities and how we can often have a negative opinion of them. This may be how you feel when you look at these laws. 
They may confirm to you your opinions of a God who tells you what to do, and maybe more to the point, what not to do. But actually, many who were under the law in the Old Testament didn't see the law this way. We're going to have another second passage from Psalm 119 about the law. These are the first eight verses. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and keep him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. Thank you very much. What was the psalmist's attitude to the law? Well, from his point of view, he saw obeying God and his law as the path to being blessed to keeping his way pure. And it actually doesn't stop at verse 8. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible. Andrew may be grateful I didn't get her to read the whole thing, because it is 176 (coughs) verses. In fact, it is the longest chapter in the whole Bible. This guy really did think the law was fantastic and was eager to obey God. You see, the law was never intended to oppress people, but rather to lead people back into a relationship with God the King. Now, if we want to know more about the law, then the New Testament provides some very clear teaching in the book of Romans. In Romans 3, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. In this verse, it says the purpose of the law given to the Israelites was to make them accountable to God, to make them conscious of their sin. However, in response to this, many of the Israelites became obsessive about trying to keep the law something we call legalism. Legalism means strict conformity to the letter of the law rather than its spirit. And I think that's something we still face as Christians today. Rather than concentrating on how we can know and serve God better, we can often put the focus on leading a perfect Christian life, even at the expense sometimes of our relationship with God. Now we're going to return very briefly to our, the, um, our shield of last week. Johnny, I'm going to get you up because I think without your starring role you'd probably feel you'd be left out after last week. So, Johnny last week helped me demonstrate very much how a shield works. We're going to do a slightly different example this week. Only that there are three ways we can use a shield. Shall we use, let's do the um, effective way first, since, since we know that. So when attacks come at us, when things come at us in, in life, and we have our shield ready and we're ready to use it effectively, go on. Ah. It's going to break one of these days, isn't it? 
it's not too much of a problem. Rebellion, one way to think of it is to say, I'm going to take my own path. I'm going to choose not to have the shield. And sometimes our Christian lives are, we tend to put God down and go off in our own direction. But the problem is, when the attacks come... (laughs) What we try to do is try and get to... We try and run to God as quickly as possible. We run back to him when we're in times of need. But is that really the right time to actually go back to him when we're in rebellion? Third situation. Sometimes we can be so concerned with the law, being so legalistic, that we're trying to work out effectively the correct angle to hold the shield at and the correct height, and we're just not paying attention to what's actually going on. We're not really focusing on the shield or on what's going on around us because we're too concerned with the letter of the law. Thank you, Johnny. (laughs) He's good. I I don't think actually I have examples for other weeks, but maybe we can just get him to do it every week just for a bit of fun. (laughs) So... The point is with legalism that we're never going to be able to get everything right. Romans 3, it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. The law only acts as a mirror. It shows you that you are dirty. It does not clean you. The Bible has a word for the clean state that man needs to be in to be in a right relationship with God. Righteousness, morally upright, without guilt or sin. So if the Israelites could not receive righteousness through the law, where did this leave them with regards to their sin? Were they righteous? Well, if we look back to Abraham, who was around even before the law was proclaimed, we get a hint to the answer. In Genesis 15 it says, Abraham Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. So is this verse really saying that Abraham was cleansed of his sins, was made righteous just for believing what God said? The answer is yes, but actually we're still missing a crucial piece of the puzzle. And if we go back to Romans, it can fill in that last piece. Romans 3 says, Now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testified it looked forward to. This righteousness comes from God, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Sorry, apologies. He did this to demonstrate his justice. There we go. Um, Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. See, this passage tells us that God actually left the sins committed before Jesus died unpunished. 
And that when Jesus died, he died not only for our sins, but also for the sins of those in the Old Testament who had faith. Even though they didn't know about Jesus specifically. People in the Old Testament, like Abraham, lived their life in the service of God, in the expectation that God would fully redeem them to reconcile his people to him. So it was their faith, plus Jesus' death, even in expectation, that leads to their righteousness. It didn't remove the consequences of their sin, but it did allow them to remain in relationship with God. So how does this apply to us today? First, we learn that the Old Testament characters are more like us than we may imagined. They rebelled like us, but those who lived by faith in God had righteousness credited to them. Therefore, we can look at the examples of these men and women of, of faith as examples of how we should live in service to God. And a great place to find a list of them, a great starting place, Hebrews 11, fantastic place, to see a list of those who lived by faith. Secondly, the law points or testifies to a restored relationship with God. So even if much of the law no longer applies to us as those who follow Jesus, it can still give us real insight into the principles of what it means to serve God and be in relationship with him. And finally, as we said before, the example of the Israelites provides a warning about legalism, a warning that actions alone do not lead to righteousness or a right relationship with God. If we think about the way we serve God, we think about it as, a, as God and the perfect way as a centre point on a line. On one point is rebellion, a refusal to trust and to follow God's word. On the other end of the scale is legalism, a trust in God's law rather than God himself. If we're trusting in something other than God, though, actually, legalism can also be seen as rebellion. It's still a movement away from God. Even if one looks a good deal more holy than the other, neither of them is the right direction. And so both directions can be seen as a form of rebellion. So the final question for this week for you to think about is, are there ways in which you are currently rebelling against God? So we're going to take, go into discussion time now. We've got questions as we have last week. So.